Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Second Peter, for those new to the Christian faith, that's near the back of the Bible, in front of that big book at the end called Revelation, you'll find it. Second Peter, starting in chapter 1, Peter speaking to God's people in a place called Asia Minor, God's people under stress and pressure uh, in crazy ways. Listen to what Peter says to them in the first verses. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Grass withers, flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Warren Salter's yard yielded way more problems than weeds, according to Good Morning of America's Daniel Bean. Inches below the surface of his, of his yard, Salter dug up glass, spark plugs, and even the hood of an old truck. Salter bought his home in Havelock, North Carolina, back in 2001, And by 2003, he realized things were not good with his home and his yard. Salter reports, everybody's yard is dropping. What used to be flat land the kids played on now has big sunken areas. Trees planted years ago are now tilted downhill as they sink into big holes. Cracks are showing in the drywall of homes. And Salter lamented, I get the feeling that I'll drive home one day on my driveway and with my truck, and my truck and my driveway will sink down into a big hole. Well, the reason for all of this going on, they had discovered, was that their neighborhood was built on a landfill. Feeling, uh, feeling the hurt that goes with being in that, Salter and other neighbors appealed to the city of Havelock for help, but to no avail. Havelock, the city, said they would have to deal with it themselves. And Salter recently said with a sigh that his house is settling. My neighbor's yard is dropping. We have a mess out here. It's not getting the attention it deserves to get cleaned up. So we got the remnants of a landfill, holes sinking everywhere, and no one willing to change it. What a great way to describe what is often happening right in front of us in our culture, and dare I say, even in some of our families' lives and our personal lives. Definite landfill effect. And when we face the problem of sin and worldliness in our culture, it feels like we're living on a landfill with sinkholes showing up all around, and sadly, too often the sinkholes are ignored or even celebrated. Today in Second Peter, we're going to start this new series. Uh, 
where we build on our studies of Romans 6 and the idea of growing spiritually through sanctification. And in 2 Peter, we're going to look at more closely at how to dive into a society, even a family, even a life where sin seems normal. Even through sinkholes and trash showing up everywhere. Now, it's no secret that in American culture, even among our families, we're facing a kind of cultural shift where, once, where, what, where things that once seemed forbidden are now, well, normal. That would be actually the definition of worldliness, you might recall. Worldliness is anything that makes uh, sin look normal and virtue look strange. And the result is it's creating chaos in our homes, in our families, in our lives, in our, in our society. And the question out of this applied directly to the people even of Peter's day in the first century. They were stuck in this society where they were trying to live for Christ. And as a result, as they were facing re, uh, resistance to their life, Christian lifestyles, they were asking, how in the world should we live in this world where sin is increasingly normal and virtue is strange? How do we deal with the pressure to conform? After all, we are called to live a very different life as believers. Again, Peter is writing to first century Christians who were feeling the tension to conform to cultural norms. And as a result, they, had a, they were struggling with their distinctly Christian lifestyle. The culture around them was pressuring them in extraordinary ways. And so Peter writes to these Christians in an effort to open their eyes to what they have in Christ when you're feeling the pressure to conform from a very worldly culture. And today I'd like to suggest he's writing to us too. Because all of us here in this room have sinkholes in our lives where we feel like we're living on a landfill. And Jesus wants to lead us through that to a different kind of life. And so listen to what Peter does as he greets these people feeling the pressure of conformity in the first century. In verse 1, he says, Simon Peter, a servant apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now stop and, let's stop and consider who's writing the letter first. It is the Apostle Peter, or Simeon Peter, as it says here in our text, at least in the ESV. Simeon being a more Hebrew or even Aramaic name, Peter being a more Greek name. And Peter describes himself in this unique way, calls himself both a servant and an apostle. And I can tell you right off the bat, that is an unusual combination of words. Here's why. Very often in that culture, everybody was either thought of as one who was uh, serving other people or the boss. But Peter uses both of these words very intriguingly because servant is the language of slavery. It is the word that describes submission. Apostle is a word uh, given to those who are empowered by Jesus with authority to speak on his behalf. Unlike anyone else in the church, apostles have this unique ability to speak with the authority of Christ. In other words, with authority. So you got here the language of submission and the language of authority. What can we learn from that right off the bat? Well, here's the thing. If you ever aspire to be a leader, 
a leader in your home, a leader in your workplace, a leader at church. You've got to learn the art of submissive authority. Yeah, that's right. Submissive authority being that sense that I am submitting ultimately to Christ and what he wants in my life. I answer to him ultimately And yet I'm also submitting to others and their needs in my service. It is the language of servant leadership. Peter is articulating he is there to serve even as an apostle. But there's more to this, uh, that Peter is writing this. He's wanting to serve them because he's been through it. He's been through it in life and particularly in experiencing the sense of conformity the pressure to conform in his own life. Think about Peter for a second in his life. Peter, of course, was called by Jesus as, uh, from a life as a fisherman with his brother Andrew into service of following Jesus in official ways as, a, as an apostle. And yet, it was Peter who had both the courage to speak about Christ and yet ultimately gave in to conformity despite the courage. Remember the courage of Peter? It was Peter who got to hang out with Jesus as part of the inner circle and saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, it's kind of the veil of heaven was pulled away and he saw Jesus in his divine, extraordinary nature and, and led in worship, even in their midst, kind of bumbling with his word, blah, 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 should we build tabernacles? But you sense the heart of, I want to worship. It was Peter who in Matthew 16 said, when everybody else was kind of thinking in their head that Jesus might be the Messiah, it was Peter who finally said, when Jesus said, who do you think I I am? He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He had this great courage to speak what was on his mind and what he really believed about Christ. Now, of course, many of us know that Peter does come across in the Gospels as one who speaks his mind. (laughs) No offense to my New Yorker friends, but he was a brash, direct, kind of bring it straight to you guy. It's really refreshing. Actually, you know what Peter's thinking. Sometimes that's really good. Sometimes it's not so good. In fact, sometimes Jesus would get, I mean, Peter would get brash with Jesus. He would say to Jesus at one point, not only are you the Messiah, but then when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, he's very uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus suffering. So what he does is he says, no, no, Jesus. He rebukes Jesus and said, no, no, you can't do that. That's not good. Now, let me tell you, a good thing as a Christian not to do is to rebuke God. That's just a bad idea to talk to Jesus, the Lord, and say, you know, your way of doing things is just not working. Nevertheless, he did that. And of course, later on, as uh, Jesus is right before his passion, as he's approaching the cross in Jerusalem one night, Jesus predicts all his disciples would end up forsaking him, running away from him. And you know the story. Peter says, among all of them, he says, no, no, Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. Now, all my loser apostle friends here, they might leave you, but never me. I'm for you. I'm right here. And within 12 hours, as many of you know, Peter actually denies that he knows Jesus three times. Even the third time, cursing in his language. Like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know him. So, Peter knew this idea of courage when faced with resistance, 
But he also knew what happened when under pressure and seeing what was going to happen to Jesus in his death, how he gave into conformity. So this man gave in. Now, the extraordinary thing about Peter's story is it doesn't stop with his denial. Jesus had told him even before his denial that he was praying for him as Satan wanted to sift him. But he also tells him an interesting thing. He tells him that, um, excuse me, he goes on, Jesus goes on to die on the cross for him and his sin. And then he's resurrected. And who of all the apostles does Peter name at his resurrection when he speaks with the women who are there at the, the tomb? Peter. He calls them out. Go tell Peter I'm alive. And then later on, he meets with Peter and he asks him those three penetrating questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Matching up, of course, with the three denials that Peter gave. So what I'm saying is this. Though Peter proclaimed kind of this proud life of I'm the strong enough to handle it. In other words, he knew human strength. Peter also knew human failure and darkness and sin, rejecting his own Lord in just a blatant way. And yet the same God, the same Christ who called him, comes into his life and redeems him. He redeems him. It's an extraordinary story. He is redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He knows redemption and the result was he was a changed man. Peter's life was changed so that he would go and boldly proclaim the gospel to Jews who got mad at him, beat him up, imprisoned him. He would go on and bring the Gentiles into the church, which was not exactly a popular thing with the Jews of the time. And we have to ask, what is Peter's story under pressure, facing conformity, got to do with us? What has Peter's redemption got to do with us? Well, everything. David Helms says it this way. You can fall. You can fall in this world, but by the grace of God, you can still finish well. Too often we see our lives as ruined, as stained, as broken, never be the same. But don't you understand that in your darkness and your brokenness, even in the moments of conformity, God wants to pull you out of that into a different life, into something beautiful. The believers that Peter spoke to in our text and in his time really needed to hear this. They were believers likely in Asia Minor, like he wrote to in 1 Peter, and they were facing serious cultural pressure. Number one, their religion was growing like wildfire in the Roman Empire. And while it was popular among them, it wasn't popular among all the Greco-Roman gods. You see that through Acts, out, out Book of Acts. People are regularly pushing back on them, getting angry at them. And do, they do not like not only what they believe about Jesus, but they didn't like their lifestyle. Even more, even worse... Peter is writing this letter at the end of his life while he's imprisoned. And you know who the emperor was while he was in prison? It was Nero. For those of you who don't know history, Nero was one of those uh, Caesars who was a few bricks short of a load. He didn't have it all there, and he was a violent man. 
And as a result, he oppressed Christians intentionally and blamed the problems of the Roman Empire not on himself, but on those Christians who were taking over. You can understand with all this going on, the pressure was on with Christians and the spirit of conformity seemed like a really attractive option when people don't like you. So what does Peter say to remind the Christians at the very beginning of this, right in this text? Well, look at verse 1. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives them three truths right here automatically. And the first truth is this. He tells them that uh, they are those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That is, the apostles in this case. Now, why is he saying this? He is really pointing out uh, that the faith they have, that is the content of what they believe, and really the way they cling to Christ by faith, is the same kind of faith that the apostles have. They live in a world where they are being ostracized. Peter's saying, but God is bringing us in and we are of the same faith. I mean, think about that. What if a leader of a company or maybe the president of the United States or some great leader that you know of really, uh, as a spiritually, says you are on the same page as me? Peter's a rock star in the early church. And he's saying, you're the same as me when it comes to our connection with Christ. We're the same family, if you will. And then Peter gives some more encouragement how that sameness came to be. He talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, Romans 3 talked at length about how there is a righteousness from God. The whole world, in its guilt and shame, tries to develop its own righteousness to get in with God. But what we learn from Romans is this, is that there is a righteousness from God given to us in Christ that puts us right with God. In other words, it doesn't depend on us to get us right with God. It's all on Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. He gets us right. It's not up to us, in other words, to get it right. What Peter is saying here is that when it comes to our relationships in the kingdom of God together, we need to remember we're on the same team and that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no first class or second class Christians in the church. They, we are all God's children when we cling to Christ by faith alone. There is a third truth here in our text, and it's a subtle illusion, but man, it's just so worth talking about for a moment. He talks about how this righteousness is of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that little language there? Isn't that interesting? Of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's calling Jesus God. He's actually saying, this is no norm, uh, ordinary Savior, and Savior figures are regularly coming up both outside of the church and inside of the church. Now he's saying, look, Christ himself is the one true Christ that we seek. Now, why is this important that he says of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? He is talking about what every letter writer in the New Testament is getting at. Jesus is the one Christ, the only Lord. 
You see, the question in that day was when we talk about God, which God are we talking about? Because everybody talks about God. Which God are we talking about? But you know what our question is in our day? It's not which God are we talking about. Now it's gone to another level in our pluralistic, latent Christian culture. Which Christ are we talking about? Which Jesus? Because we live in an age where Jesus is not less popular, he's more popular. He's on the page every year of Newsweek, Time Magazine. He's in articles everywhere, people trying to reconstruct who he is. And we need to get to the point of asking regularly, when you talk about Jesus, my friend, which Jesus are you talking about? The one of the Bible or the one of someone's imagination? The one of history or the one that people want to make in their own image? Very important points for our time. Peter knew the believers that he wrote to were struggling with a picture of which Christ to follow. So he expresses his wish for them to focus on the Christ in verse 2 of our text. Look at what he says. Here's a wish, a blessing that, that Peter wishes for them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. While these Christians are under pressure to conform, what does Peter want for them in their temptation? Does he want them to feel better? May you feel better. May you actually have more relaxation in your life. Well, certainly he would want some of that for them. But what he really prays for and wishes for for them is grace and peace multiplied in their lives. Grace is a free gift. It is the opposite of what we deserve. And in this case, uh, he is asking, he is wishing upon them this free gift in at least three ways. When we talk about grace, and we use that word a lot in our kind of church, we're saying three things. We're talking about the love of God towards us as our Father and we as children. He talks as well about um, the grace of Jesus Christ coming through Him. That is, how His life and death and resurrection gives us forgiveness, gets us in with God, and empowers us to enjoy real relationship with God. But He also wishes for them peace. Peace being the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and bringing order to the chaos of our lives. That's what... Peter is wishing for them. And he says what's incredible about this, he wants it multiplied in their lives. This is another key thing. You and I think, hey man, I've enjoyed grace, I've tasted it, I don't know if I'll ever taste it again, but don't you understand? God is infinite in His love and in His grace and the ways He wants to love you. You can't exhaust His resources of grace. In other words, we need more grace in our lives. More peace. You've had little taste or d'oeuvres. Now it's time to move towards the main meal. And you move through this whole life tasting little desserts and tastes in your daily life with God 
until one day we're at the great banquet in heaven with Him enjoying it in even more ways than we ever dreamed. We need more grace in our lives. And God has enough resources to provide for you. When you think God doesn't care for me anymore, I have blown it, I have conformed enough in my life, I'm sure He's ticked off at me. Stop. Stop. Jesus loves you. And His love hasn't changed even though your love has changed. He's still holy. He may even discipline you in His love, but it's love nonetheless to redirect you from a life of conformity to a life of godliness. When you feel the pressure to conform from culture, from your family, from your friends, you have God's grace and peace at your disposal. Stop trying to create your own grace and peace. In 1988, the executives of Nike Corporation met together to address the fact that Nike was faltering in their struggle over sports attire with arch-rival Reebok. Don Whedon, the leading uh, guy in Nike's advertising agency, said to the leaders, the Nike guys there at the table, you know what I like about Nike? You guys just do it. Of course, that inspired the famous advertising slogan for Nike with its little swoosh. Just do it meant this kind of brash, bold, get-or-done activism that pushes through no matter what. And folks, just do it was the spirituality that Peter had with even Christ in His presence before the cross. But it's not the spirituality that Jesus wanted for him in his life. Just do it, spirituality, leaves you empty because you don't have enough in you to do it. You don't have enough in you to keep going. You need the power of God in your life through the Holy Spirit. You need to remember you are loved faithfully by God no matter what. That is what you need. And so, that's why Peter's saying you need grace and peace, is you need the grace and peace of God before you go and commit yourself to walking in this difficult world. So how in the world do we gain grace and peace in the world, even in a world where moral sinkholes are all over the place? Well, look at verse 3 of our text. Uh, Peter dives in and says that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Peter lays out two grants in our text and one condition. And this is how we gain the grace and peace of God. He says in verse 3 that Christ uh, grants us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That word grant, that's the same Greek uh, form word as that of a free gift. The gift that we receive in Christ. Uh, in other words, God has gifted us. He has graced us. Yet again. And the key to understanding this is we don't try and earn it. We ask for it in prayer. When you are frustrated by your life, in Christ. You go to prayer and you ask for God's grant of what you need. 
And he will give you, according to our text, all things. What are all things? Well, that's eternal life. We'll talk more about that in a second. It's salvation. You know, we talk about the big S of salvation, that I'm saved, and that's very true. When you receive Christ in your life for the first time, you are saved. But there are little S salvations that go on in life all the time. When you face troubles in life, hardships, things are too big for you, which happen very regularly for all of us, we're to call on the Lord and ask for His salvation yet again in this life. That builds up, of course, to the grand salvation when Jesus returns, but more of that to come in future weeks. All these things that Paul, excuse me, Peter is talking about in our text relate to life and godliness. Life is eternal life. Living unto God. When he talks about godliness, he's talking about the quality of living unto God, that we reflect the glory of God. We are image bearers remade in Christ to reflect the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the character of God in the way we live. And then he concludes with this vision of excellence. You know what that word for excellence is? Virtue. That's the way the Greeks describe, use this word, is to describe virtue. That's a word we don't use anymore. We sometimes talk about character in people's lives, and we want to see character in people. But virtue is something bigger. Virtue is a life that makes an impact because of character. A life that makes a difference. That's the first thing God has granted us. All things. All things in the Spirit to live this way. But there's a second thing He's granted us. And it's in, our, in verse 4. It says He's granted us His precious and very great promises. Promises. Now, I know some of us, the skeptics in our midst, say, oh yeah, promises. I've heard promises before. I hear them in my marriage. Hear them from my boss. Hear them from politicians. I've heard it. And how often do people come through on their promises? Well, here's what I tell you. There is a God who keeps His promises. And the Bible is full of promises where God comes through them. In fact, that's one of the forms of the promises is that God says, I I will do this, and He comes through. Supremely, He does that in Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing. When God makes promises, He does it on His timetable, not our timetable. That's where we often struggle is we hear promises of God and we think, when is He going to come through? But that's part of the promises he's talking about in our text here. These very great promises include those of what God will do in the future. God has done things and come through on his promises in the past, but he will come through in the future. This is the language of hope. Of hope. Hope of what is to come. What God will do. When God makes a promise and says, I will do this for you, he will come through. I found a great quote from William Gurnall. And he says, The promise is God's love letter to His church where He opens His heart and tells her all He means to do with her. Faith embraces the promise here and now, believing that God will come through because He comes through over and again, especially in Christ. But hope looks forward to how God will come through on the promise. Gurnall puts it this way. Faith, if you will, is taking 
the, uh, the promise and internalizing it in your soul now, what the Word of God says, hope is opening the window of your house and looking out with expectation, longing for God to fulfill His promise. That's what we are called to live in. That kind of hope in the promises of God. And, and these promises, what they do is they embolden us. They embolden us to conform to Christ-likeness. Let me explain. When you and I feel the pressure like the landfill is about to fall through, when things seem to be collapsing, we get afraid. And you know what happens is we start to look forward. And when we look forward, when the landfill seems to be falling all around, we are afraid that when we look forward, our future is dark and God is not there. You know what they call that in the Bible? It's called worry. But when you live in the promises and you listen to God's Word and what He says, what happens is you actually start looking in the future with God's promise affecting what you see. You look forward and see God waiting there with His promise which will be fulfilled in His time for you. This will change you in how you handle life now. When you look forward with hope in Christ, with the promises feeding that hope, it changes how you handle life now. If you're looking forward and see darkness and God isn't there and worry, then you start running around, I've got to fix it, I've got to fix it. But when you live with the hope of God bringing His salvation in His time and His way, that'll change the way you act upon your relationships, your job, your future, dare I say, your death. Jesus calls us to this kind of life. Peter is highlighting, hey guys, live in the promise of God. Dwell on all the times God says, I will do this for you. And you know what the number one promise in, in Scripture is, right? You ready? I am with you. That's what God says. I'm here. You may not feel it sometimes, but I'm here. And then right beside it is another one. I will be with you. You look out in time, when it think it's going to be dark, and this doesn't look like it's going to have a happy ending, I'm there. I'm there. For you. That is the hope that he gives us. And with I am with you and I will be with you, he regularly says, do not fear. If you struggle with hope, if you look all around at cultural decay or your family mess, even the normalization of sin, the injustices that you experience in your life and in your career, ask these questions. What is true about God right now? What's true about Him? And then ask, what has He promised to me? To us? In other words, what's going to be true then? And then go to this spiritual exercise. I like doing the spiritual exercise, just so you know. When I get worried, and I do get worried, yep, I struggle with that. I go to 
what if I died today? That's the worst thing that could happen, right? Is if I die. That would be the hardest thing in the world. That's probably the thing that, number one thing that people fear. What if I died? Well, gosh, then I would be with Jesus in heaven and have more riches than I could dream of and be in the very presence of God and see His face. This has a happy ending no matter what because of Christ. Jesus is waiting for us to trust Him and His promises, to grab a hold of all things that He has granted and enjoy them. But my last application comes out of our text, and this is a key condition to enjoying what God grants. Verse 3 and verse 2 and verse 8 talk about enjoying the grace and peace of God in the knowledge of Jesus. Did you see that little phrase? This is a crucial condition to enduring the challenges to conformity in our time. You must know God. You must know Jesus Christ. In John 17.3, Jesus prays uh, to the Father, and He says, This is eternal life, that they may know You and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. You want to have life in this world. You want to have life uh, beyond death. You've got to know Jesus Christ. Eternal life isn't just going to heaven. It's tasting God's grace and peace now. What is knowing like? What does that mean to know? Well, you've got to know with your head. You've got to know with your heart. And you've got to know with your hands. You know God with your head by dwelling on the Scriptures and what it says and what is revealed about God in here. What do we know about God that's true? He's loving. He's sovereign. He doesn't change. He's good. Here's an exercise. Mix those up a little bit. God has a good sovereignty, a good plan. Everything's going to work out for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What about this one? God doesn't change in His love. Even when I feel like He's distant and He's nowhere around, He's right there smiling on me because Christ covers me with His righteousness. What about His grace? <laughs> Giving gifts. He's infinite. So He can keep giving gifts and grace constantly. There's no end to the grace He offers. Know God in your head. Think about Him and think on Him. Knowing God also comes with the heart. And i got to tell you, and we reform people, we got to get this down. We like to think about God a lot, but we got to go to another place. And that is we got to connect with Him relationally in prayer. we got to actually listen to Him and enjoy Him in relationship. Knowing God is a heart thing where we experience Him in our lives. When's the last time you experienced God knowing Him and feeling His presence and sensing His smile and His grace in your life? That's the smile you want to live under when you're pressured with conformity. Third thing you've got to do is know God with your hands. Knowing God with your hands means you obey God. This is an interesting spiritual point throughout the New Testament. That Jesus says, when you obey me, you know me. When you know me, you obey me. And it just keeps going again and again. As you obey, you get to know God deeper. Do you want to know God deeper? Obey Him. Risk by faith, trusting His way of handling things. 
Not your own ways. Not your own devices. You will know Him more personally. More truly. This is the number one thing we have to do when facing our culture is knowing God intimately. Personally. And you can only do that by faith. If you're uh, really exploring Christianity right now, you're just not sure what to do with this Christianity, and you know it can be countercultural, do know this. We aren't countercultural on our own power. We're countercultural because we need Christ. And He leads us to this unique and different life of love. You can taste that by going home and trusting in Christ for your own salvation, saying, Jesus, I need Your forgiveness and grace to cover me. For those who are Christians and who feel like your life is a landfill (laughs) with potholes coming up everywhere, trash popping up, guess what? Jesus is Lord. And He loves you. And He is utterly committed to giving you all things and giving you hope by His precious promises. God is calling us to a life of reflecting His character in that. As this text concludes with, the intended result of our experience of God is that we reflect His glory even in this life. Partake in the divine nature. That doesn't mean we become gods like the Mormons say. It means we reflect God's glory in beautiful ways. In conclusion, on March the 8th of this year, Mark Mehal of Waterloo, Illinois, went out on his golf course that he loved to play on. He was having the round of his life. It was chilly that morning when he noticed a little uh, indentation in the fairway. He walked over to it uh, before he took a shot, put his foot on it, it felt a little firm and tried to step on. And before he knew it, the whole ground dropped below him. And all he saw was sudden darkness and he felt like he was falling for a few seconds. Finally, he stopped. His arm was in an awkward place. He had hurt his shoulder. He had fallen into a sinkhole in the golf course. Uh, Mark Mehal cried out. And his, you know, his, his buddies, this is a classic golf buddies, you know, just got to tell you, looked around, thought, he's playing a joke on us. You know, uh, he's hiding from us. This is some kind of uh, in joke. But then they saw the hole, went over, and they heard him yelling down in there. And they realized the only way they could get down to him was put a ladder in, climb down, and get him. So that's what they did. They got down the hole. They pulled him out. And he was injured, but he was okay. <laughs> and uh, the writer of the story, he said in an interesting way, he said, uh, you know, uh, he went out to play 18 holes of his best, the best holes of his life. He ended up being in a deep hole in his life. And sometimes that's exactly where we end up. In a world that calls us to conform In a world that even wants to bury us at times, Jesus is saying, I'm here for you. Trust in me. Follow me. And you will find life. Let's go to the Lord with final prayer. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would...